0: Well, another autumn is rapidly closing on the annual calendar, a time where the last few leaves are being stripped from dormant trees awaiting new life in the spring, a time when our farmers are scrambling between hours uh, of uh, good weather and bad weather trying to get their crops in before the snow flies a time when we are gathering our fuel oil and our gas and our wood in preparation for the cold winter months, and the time that we traditionally set aside what everybody calls the holiday season now, where we celebrate Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, all in the span of about six weeks. And for a Christian, this ought to be a time that reminds us of our many blessings in the Lord. And Psalm 103 is a great aid to us in remembering the ways that God blesses his people so that in turn we might bless him. And King David is the author of this psalm. He is a type of Christ. And although he was a sinner like we are, he was also the greatest of all Israel's kings and a man after God's own heart. He authored over half of the psalms in the word of God. As he contemplated the many benefits that God had bestowed upon him, he welled up in praise and composed this psalm. Now last time we looked at his personal reasons for blessing God, which really are ours as well. But he wrote those particular verses in the second person singular as he's speaking to himself and personalizing God's blessings, and in turn uh, blesses God. And he blessed God for the forgiveness of sins, healing our infirmities, redeeming us from eternal destruction, being crowned with God's loving kindness, and providing us a satisfying life. But now beginning in verse 6, as we read earlier, King David shifts his thoughts to the people of God. And he speaks now in the second person plural to those who fear God, keep his covenant, and remember his commandments. He's addressing the faithful people who follow the Lord and thus receive his many benefits. So today, as we approach another Thanksgiving week, Let's contemplate why we, as Christ's New Testament saints, should bless the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray today that you would again remind us of the great things that you have done, the great provisions that you have made for us, that help us to be a people who can indeed bless you. Lord, uh, these are just a few of the things that you've done on our behalf We could all personalize many more. And yet, Lord, we we think today as we approach uh, another Thanksgiving day, not long before we enter a new year, that you would help us to be a faithful people who fear you, and we show that by blessing you, not just during this time of the year, but, Lord, every day. So, Lord, use this psalm to help us see some of the reasons why your people can bless you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin in verses 6 and 7. And here we see that we bless the Lord for what he does for his people. Only a couple of things are mentioned here. There are many, many things that uh, Paul, uh, God does for his people. But in these verses, David mentions two things. He delivers them from oppression... And he reveals to them his ways. So in verse 6 we read, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now again, in these verses, we have to be careful that we don't read too much into all because God does not always bless all people all the time. And certainly there is an aspect of his grace that really does bless everyone in the world in different ways, but he doesn't necessarily deliver them all the time uh, outside of his purposes and outside of his will. So in the fallen world in which we live, there certainly exists much oppression. It has sometimes been based on the color of one's skin, and it's sad to see that there are those in high places today who always want to play that card. But there are many other ways people are oppressed, such as harsh, draconian laws, unjust governments who are led by despots and tyrants, unjust judicial systems that render oppressive decisions, wicked people who are proud and sit in powerful places. And then on the personal level, there is much oppression going on as well. There's child abuse, spousal abuse, bullying, and all kinds of other ways in which we can be oppressed. Uh, and you have it because we are a sinful and depraved people. And sometimes God's people end up being oppressed as well. Israel was oppressed for 400 years in Egypt before God finally acted and delivered them. And that was in his timing and according to his promise. And he did rescue them. And he put, and he brought justice upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. David was oppressed by Saul for many years. The prophets were oppressed by selfish, rebellious rulers. But the Lord strengthened them in those times and their enemies were eventually judged and dealt with. We come to the New Testament, we look at Hebrews chapter 11, and it mentions many men and women of faith, some of whom were oppressed, but God's will was accomplished in them, and eventually they reached the promised destination. So there are many times that God allows us to be oppressed in some way, but we can trust his purposes and know that we, uh, he will always be right, and he will always be just, He'll see us through. And of course, in the end, he will deliver us from all of this when he takes us home to be with him. We remember Moses when he wrote Deuteronomy 32, verse four, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So in those times where we may feel oppressed we have to realize God has his purposes in it and eventually he will deliver us because he is good and he is right. Now in verse 7 we see something else and that is that he made his ways known to Moses his acts to the children of Israel. Now the Lord then makes his ways known to his people. The Lord has chosen over time to reveal himself to us. He revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the garden. As time progressed, he revealed himself to Abraham and the patriarchs. And then he revealed himself to Moses being one of the earliest uh uh, people in his time frame. And Moses, of course, wrote down for us the law. And we believe Moses put together all the oral tradition that's been handed down. And he uh, composed Genesis all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. So the Lord revealed his law, his word to Moses. And Moses wrote it down. And we still have it here today, thousands of years after God gave it to us. And through him we uh, we receive the ways of the Lord. And think of the ways that God made himself known to that generation. As he mentions Moses here, and David brings up Moses in the early period of, of uh, Israel's um, coming to be a nation. Uh, imagine witnessing the ten plagues that God sent upon Egypt. Imagine the miracle of crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and then Pharaoh's army being destroyed as the Lord brought it back to its normal place. Think of uh, Mount Sinai, the smoke and the fire and the voice of God thundering from the mount that uh, put fear in the heart's of the people. Think of God meeting their needs as they were journeying through the wilderness wanderings and gave them victory in the second generation and as they went into the promised land and conquered it. God showed Moses how he should be worshipped and obeyed through the sacrifices, through the priesthood, and through the tabernacle. So reviewing God's ways in the past helps us to trust his ways now. And we have the complete revelation of God in our hands, and there's no excuse for us not to know God's will. And we're blessed to have this absolute truth to save us, to sanctify us, and to guide us in our journey to glory. If the Lord had never revealed his ways to us, we would be a people with absolutely no hope. So we can thank God for these things, the way he treats us, what he does for us, especially in giving us his word where we find all these great and wonderful things. Now, we come to the next section here, beginning in verse 8, and we see that we bless the Lord because of what he is toward his people. And this parallels some of the things David has mentioned in verse uh, the first five verses. And we come to verse 8, and we see that the righteous character of God is revealed here. And verses 9 through 13 give us some evidences or some examples of that righteousness uh, working upon his people. So in verse 8, we are told that the Lord is merciful and gracious Slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So, first of all, we have the blessing of God's perfect character in that verse. Now, there's no doubt that this alludes to God's revelation of Moses, uh, to Moses of himself. Do you remember that occasion? If we went back to Exodus chapter 33, you will remember the story of how Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. But the Lord could not reveal his visible being to Moses. Instead, he hid him in the cleft of the rock, and as God passed by, he revealed his character. He said to Moses, I will show you my goodness and my grace and my compassion. And as God did that in chapter 34, when he passed by Moses, this is what he proclaimed about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now David mentions nearly all those perfections in this psalm so let's take a moment just to review them quickly all right first of all uh, he mentions here that the Lord is merciful that word means compassion or pity. the Lord is uh, shows pity toward his children he is touched by their their condition, and of course our condition is one of sin, but he's not just feeling sorry for us, he does something about it, and he sends the Lord into the world to save us. So it's God's compassion upon us, not just feeling sorry for us, but providing what will remove that condition. Then he says that the Lord is also gracious Of course, we have that great word in the Bible, uh, grace that we just sang about. But we know that this is God's unmerited, unearned favor that He constantly pours out upon us, especially His people, those who know Him. He goes on to say that God is slow to anger. That means He's long-tempered. He's patient. He's long-suffering toward us. He doesn't deal with us as we really deserve. If you turn back to Psalm 78, um, he mentions this in response to the rebellion of his people. 78 verse 38, but he, uh, if you back up, you would note, for their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But what is God's response? Verse 38, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. So although God could have judged them for every single thing they did wrong, he didn't. And the same is true of us and the same is true of everybody. I don't know about you, but uh, I usually uh, glance through the obituaries in the Sunday paper. You might think that's a little morbid, but what I look at is how old everybody was when they died. And I'm always looking for people who are older than I am. Um, But you know what? You think about all these people, they died. Did they know the Lord? And in their 80, 90, maybe even 100 years, how many sins did they commit that God did not judge them for, but in the end, he will have to. And the same is true of us. Even once we're saved, when we commit a sin, we deserve to be punished for it. But does he always do that? No, he doesn't. He's long-suffering toward us. And whenever it was you got saved, however old you were, All those sins before you got saved, he didn't punish you for them. He could have. He would have been just to do so. But instead, he saved you, and then he could forgive you of all those sins. So he's aware of all the sins being committed by all people in the world every day, but he's not always acting in judgment upon that each and every day. Finally, we're told he is abundant in mercy, Now, there's, again, a key word in the Old Testament. It could have been translated loving kindness. This is that Hebrew word has said that uh, the psalmist already mentioned in verse 4, and he mentions it in verse 11 and verse 17 as well. So this is God's overflowing, abundant, um, uh, superabundant, really, loyal love toward his people. So in what ways... Are these perfections then evidence to us? These great things, his compassion, his grace, his long suffering and his loving kindness or his abundant mercy. Well, he goes on to display some examples of this in the next few verses. So let's look at verse nine. He will not always strive or chide with us nor will he keep his anger forever. Or what's that an example of? That's an example of his long suffering. He's slow to anger. Now, this does not mean he does not get angry with people. Another psalm says he's angry with the wicked every day, but he doesn't act upon that anger. He doesn't destroy them immediately. He also will chide with his own people when they go astray. So this is what happened to the nation of Israel. He put up with their rebellion in the wilderness. Well, finally he said, okay, this generation is going to actually die in the wilderness. So as time went by, that generation passed away, the new generation goes into the promised land. Well, do they continue to follow the Lord? No, they go through the cycles of the Judges. Uh, For a while they obey, then they disobey, God has to punish them, and the cycle starts over again. And finally, eventually, he has to judge the whole nation and boot them out of the promised land because of their persistent sinfulness, but that was hundreds of years after sending the prophets and giving them all he could. But you know what? Once the sin is realized, and the sin is confessed and dealt with, God uh, doesn't hold his anger. He forgives and he forgets. So he's long-suffering toward us. He will deal with us if he has to. If we won't recognize our own sin, he'll do things to, to bring that to our attention. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Unfortunately, some of his children aren't quite like that. They hold their anger. Their their grudge uh, is on others forever and they never grant forgiveness. But God's not like that. So we see his long-suffering displayed there. Now look at verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. Was he speaking of that? Well, that's his mercy. He doesn't give us What we deserve. That's what mercy is. Sin, uh, the word sin here alludes to the guilt associated with wrongdoing, whether a person senses that or not. Our prisons are full of lawbreakers who have no sense of guilt about why they're where they're at. But that doesn't mean they're not guilty. And sometimes we may sin and not have a sense of guilt about it, but sooner or later God will help us to see that. So sin carries the idea of the guilt associated with the wrong done. Now iniquity is a stronger term that reveals the perversity and depravity of the sin. So every sin is rebellion against God's law and God's will. Every sin deserves immediate punishment, perhaps some more than others, Yet, as we mentioned, how many sins go unpunished, at least for now? If God was unmerciful and he gave us what we deserved, we wouldn't have a population on the earth, would we? No, he's merciful and he's long-suffering. All right, but ultimately, of course, sin carries the penalty of spiritual death, uh, which is eternal in, uh, separation from God, he would be completely just in letting us all get what we deserve, which is eternity in hell. But he sent Christ into the world to pay for our sin, and we don't have to worry about the the suffering of the second death because of his mercy. Now, grace and mercy go together. If mercy is God's... Uh, Uh, Not giving us what we deserve. Grace is the Lord giving us what we don't deserve. He removes our sins from us. So if you look at verse 11 and verse 12, we have examples of grace. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We've had the, uh, the expertise and the technological ability to send people out of our atmosphere up into space. And what do they find there? More space. I don't know how far that Hubble telescope, uh, telescope went, but it's amazing some of the pictures it's taken, and it hasn't even touched the fringe of outer space. So when the Psalmist says the Lord removed our sins as uh as high above the earth, not just our atmosphere, but the heaven the the second heaven, which is space, that's infinite. There is no end to it. We'll never as human beings find the end of it. So what he's saying here is that God's grace has no measure. It's infinite. And so that's what makes it so great. And then he goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west. So think about that. Maybe you have thought about it. Why didn't he say, as far as the north is from the south? Well, because if you travel north, won't you eventually go south? So it's measurable. But if you go east and you just keep going east, you're never going to go west unless you turn around. So that means the east will never come to the west. If you go the other direction, the west will never come to the east. So again, it's not measurable. So the Lord's grace is immeasurable, and that's how far he's removed our sins from us. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when the devil puts prior sins in my head. And although I might try to forget them, I, I can't always do it, but God does. He forgets about them. And he's removed them so far from us that yeah, we can't even me- uh, measure the distance. So the Lord's uh, mercy and grace is shown in all these ways, all these examples. He's removed our transgressions to a point of uh, no return, of not even being able to mem- um, measure these things. And then in verse 13, the Lord says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those Who fear him. Now, there are some fathers who don't pity their children. So he's talking about a good father who pities his child. The word pity here is the idea of compassion or or mercy. And God, of course, is perfectly so. A good father pities his children. He shows compassion toward them. He doesn't always give them what they deserve. He's not always harsh and demanding. He's gentle and forgiving. Now, he doesn't ignore things they do that's wrong, but he's forbearing. And of course, God is perfectly so. He deals with us kindly. Why? Well, because he knows our frame. He knows what we're made of in verse 14. He remembers that we're nothing but dust. Now, that recalls His creation of mankind in Adam. He made him out of the dust of the earth. And because Adam sinned, well, he had to return to the dust like all of us will. And so that points out that we are weak, we're uh, feeble, we're frail creatures. We don't have our own righteousness. We cannot obey God without his help. He knows this, so he sent Christ into the world to save us from that condition, showing us compassion And even when we believe, he knows that we're without strength, so he gives us his spirit to help us walk with him. Do we thank him then for his long-suffering, for his mercy, for his grace, for his compassion? And do we display these attributes in our own life? Because some of the attributes of God are what we call communicable. That means we then can mimic the things that God has shown us. We can be merciful, we can be compassionate, we can be gracious, we can be long-suffering. And the closer we draw to God, the more we will take on his character as he desires. So we should thank God for uh who he is to his people, what he is to his people. Now, in verses 15 to 18, He carries on with this thought that we read in verse 14, and that is we bless God because he understands his people. He understands the condition of humanity. Look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So he uses some natural metaphors here to picture the brevity and the frailty of human life. Our days are like the grass or like the flower out in the field. This year, I didn't think the grass was ever going to quit growing. Started mowing it in April, didn't quit until November. Kind of unusual. But eventually, like every year, the grass will die off in the northern hemisphere. It flourishes for a season, for a few months, and then it's gone. Uh, He mentions here a, a hot wind may pass over it and cause it to wither up and dry. Sometimes that happens in the summer. Gets too hot. Or it's just the natural passing of these types of things. And when it's gone, it's gone. Nobody can tell where the blades of grass were or the flower bloomed. It's gone. And that's the way of our physical life. Can you believe it's already Thanksgiving week 2021? You know, where did the year go? As the psalmist said elsewhere, our days pass swifter then a weaver's shuttle, and the older you are, the more you realize that truth. And verse 14 fits well with this as well, because we're nothing but dust, and our days on earth are short. God knows this. It was not his original intent, but that's the way it is because of sin. So should we be discouraged? Should we be without hope? Should we refrain from praising the Lord because our life is uh, frail and weak? and short-lived. No, because our God stands in complete contrast to this. As it says here in verses 17 and 18, God's mercy is everlasting, and it actually extends to every future generation of those who receive it. And because of God's mercy, we have an everlasting uh, hope that goes beyond the grave. His righteousness extends to us to the work of Christ at Calvary. His righteousness is given us when we place our trust in him as our Savior, and his gift of life is not short-lived like the human body and like uh, just the human breath, but it's eternal. We pass from this earth, not like uh, the grass, not like the flower. We may be gone from this realm, but we will be in the realm that lasts forever. And this should make us think, as albert barnes noted when you are gone from this realm from the earth where will you go where will you be because we'll all be somewhere either heaven or hell and through the everlasting god who shows all these attributes that he he wants to use to save us well when we accept that then we really are not a part of what the psalmist says here. Our life isn't going to be short. It's going to be eternal. Now, it's interesting that David says the Lord's righteousness extends to future generations in verse 17, to uh, uh, his righteousness to children's children. But note also he says here, and we ought to, we ought to note this, on those who fear him, to such as keep his commandment or his covenant, and those who remember his commandments to do them. So there's a particular people here that God benefits. In his grace, he generally benefits all people, but in uh, his uh elect he benefits them in all these ways that will be eternal in nature. So he's talking to a people who fear him, a people who keep his covenant, a people who keep his commandments. And so he's talking to people who, who trust in him. You fear the Lord today by believing that you are a sinner in need of his forgiveness. In the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord was really kind of equivalent to your faith in him. You believed in him and you you revered him and you looked to him as the awesome God who he was you trusted him and part of his revelation was a coming messiah in the future and you believed in that truth even though it was a shadow to you. And today we look back and we see the fullness of it. And so we fear God by trusting him, by believing his word, by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior, and then believing we then are able to keep his commandments and we are able to be faithful to him as he is to us. So it's these people that the fullness of these promises are, are put upon, that these blessings, these benefits come to. Those who aren't saved can't receive these benefits. They can't understand them. And so that should give us even greater reason to bless the Lord because he knows us so thoroughly and he made provision for us to be with him for all of eternity. Now we come down to the last section here and David turns his thoughts now to. Uh, to the whole gamut of creation. And so we bless God because he rules over all. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So he concludes with the sovereignty of God over all things. You know, David was the king of Israel. He was the king of a nation. But he didn't let that go to his head. David recognized there's a sovereign throne and a kingdom to which he must bow. And the Lord's heavenly throne is fixed in heaven, is established in heaven, as it says there in verse 19. It's stable, it's sure, it cannot be undone. It's not like earthly kingdoms and nations that are passing away. And no matter what happens here on earth, God is eternally moving things to fulfill his purposes over time. Now, we may be discouraged by the way our own country is moving, by all the evil we see happening in the world. But we are citizens of heaven, and that kingdom is righteous, it's eternally fixed, it will never pass away. So we can thank God that one day his kingdom will be completely visible on this world and we will rule with him over it. Therefore, all creatures then are called to bless the sovereign Lord. He mentions angels who are greater in power and wisdom than human beings. And if these creatures of God who are greater than we are, and they are now eternal, and they praise God, and they do his bidding and everything that he wants, and they're his ministers, and they do his pleasure. How much more should we, who are lesser beings than they? He calls upon them to bless the Lord. Verse 20, bless the Lord. Verse 21, And then in verse 22, he says, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. So that means everything, animate, inanimate, ultimately praise God. And David includes his voice at the very end, once again, as part of this harmony of all things God has created when he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. What a wonderful psalm this is. What an aid to help us bless and thank God every day. When we feel oppressed, he's there to see us through. His words a comfort and a guide to us. Are we thankful that we have it in our hand today? Do we praise him for his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his long suffering toward us? That he understands our frame our frailty, our weakness, and still deals kindly with us? When we despair that truth and righteousness are falling and failing in the world, do we thank God for his uh, providence, for his sovereign, and praise him that one day he will make all things right? So will you make an effort, beginning today, and hopefully you've done this already, but to be consistently blessing God Every day, for as many benefits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today again for your word. We thank you for this song that lifts up praise to you in so many ways. For who you are, for what you've done for your people, for your sovereign rule, for your mercy, your grace, your long-suffering, your kindness, your love. Lord, help us each day to take some time to think about these things and to praise and honor and glorify you because of them. And Lord, we pray that uh, if there's someone here this morning, perhaps one of our younger ones who have not yet come to know Christ as their Savior, that they'll realize these truths about him and all that he's done to save us as his people. Lord, help us not only this week as we gather with family and friends, but each and every day through the coming year to take time to bless your name. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.